Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this uh, sacred obligation we have Sunday mornings to come and to uh, hear from you and delight in you. Pray, God, that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. God, may we receive it with humble hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we first planted Jacobswell Church about 10 years ago, uh, we had something called a newcomer's lunch in which people that were new to the church could come to a luncheon after the service. Uh, Sometimes it was at the school, uh, but often we had it at an elder's house. And I remember one time we were having this luncheon at at the Kaiser's house, and and we had new folks there, and the reason for it is, again, so they can get to know us and we can get to know them. And there was kind of this awkward silence, and so I asked one of the teenagers there, who I knew decently well, I said, hey, can you think of an icebreaker uh, just to, you know, stir up conversation. And, and he's like, what's an iceberg? I'm like, just a question that everyone can answer. And he's like, sure, I can do that. And he thought for a moment, and in front of all of the people, his icebreaker question was this, what is your deepest, darkest sin? That was his icebreaker. And uh, we all uncomfortably laughed together. And I said, no, 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 we're not gonna, we're not gonna start there. But let me ask you this question. What is your deepest, darkest sin? What is the sin that seems to entangle you over and over again? Maybe it's a sin from the past that you just can't seem to get out of your heart and your mind, or maybe it's sin that you are still presently really struggling with right now. Either way, whichever of these sins it is, I think it's something that we are scared to share with others and scared to share with God because we figured if anyone really knew the worst parts of us, certainly they would not love us and certainly they would not like us. For 3,000 years, Psalm 51, maybe more than any passage in all of Scripture, has taught God's people what to do with their deepest, darkest sin. Over the next two weeks, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 51. Uh, This week, we're gonna be looking at real repentance in verses one through 12. And then next week, we're gonna be looking at real restoration. And one of the things we'll discover over these next two weeks is that if we want real restoration for our soul, it's only possible when it's built on the foundation of real repentance before the Lord. And so that's where we're gonna look. Psalm 51. It is page 474 in the Red Bible. If you would, please uh, open up your Bibles to that and look along as I read. And then if you're new here, keep your Bible open because we will go back to Psalm 51 frequently throughout 
this sermon. Psalm 51, verse 1 through 12. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let, my, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I'm guessing for some of us, there is uh, maybe sin that comes to mind right away that we don't want to deal with and we push to the side. Think of other less entrenched sin. God, help us to see your goodness and forgiveness and grace and mercy towards sin-prone people like us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How important, really, uh, is the doctrine of sin and repentance? In an article by Al Mohler, he writes about a man named Carl Menninger, who was a famous American psychiatrist. And perhaps his most controversial contribution was in the form of his 1973 book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. The psychological community had almost universally banned the word sin from its vocabulary. In fact, therapists blamed the notion of sin for producing guilt, which seemed to be psychologically unhealthy. Menninger's book was a powerful and influential call for recognizing sin as sin. He demonstrated that psychological community was not alone. Society at large had rejected the notion of sin. Words such as disease, antisocial behavior, lack of moral development had replaced sin as an explanation for human behavior. He wrote, I believe there is sin. There is immorality, there is unethical behavior, there is wrongdoing, and I hope to show that there is usefulness in retaining the concept, meaning the concept of sin. Moeller goes on and says, some leading churches and television preachers have followed the lead of the psychological community in rejecting the notion of sin. The word is seldom uttered in many churches. Whatever became a sin, it has been redefined, ignored, rejected, neglected, and denied. And then here's the important one. He says, yet human beings know of its reality. 
And so the point that, that, that he is making in this passage or in this article um, is that even though we may deny uh, our sin intellectually, uh, maybe we deny it verbally, we still know in our hearts of our sin. We still carry the weight of the guilt of our sin in our hearts. And if we ignore the reality of sin and repentance, then we carry that sin and guilt around in our souls the rest of our life. And so the only remedy for our sin is real repentance. Now, what does real repentance look like? And that's what we see in today's passage. And the first thing we see is that real repentance is a confession of our sin. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, this is going to need a significant amount of backstory. Some of you are probably familiar with it, but David was the king of Israel. He was known as a man after God's own heart. He is one of the champions of Israel, and he was king. And, and as king, he was meant to lead his people out into battle. But there is an occasion where David decides not to go into battle, but to stay home, which is not what a king's supposed to do. And so as King David is surfing the internet, I mean, walking on his roof, he looks over and he sees a woman who is bathing. And then we read this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. It says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, probably one of the servants, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, in other words, David, what are you thinking? This is someone else's wife. And Uriah the Hittite was a faithful man, a godly man, a good man, a servant of the Lord who was out in the battlefield. And yet David is insistent. Continues in verse 4 saying, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. That's why she took a bath. Then she returned to her house. At this point, David is fairly certain that he has gotten away with this sin, that no one is going to know it except for his servants who he had conspired with to bring her over. But God, by his grace, does not let this sin stay secret. God, by his grace, exposes the sins of his people. And we read in verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You could imagine how the hammer must have dropped for David. The seriousness of his actions had now overwhelmed him. And so David has this opportunity right here at this point to confess his sin, to repent, or to cover it up. And that's what he decides to do. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, one of the leaders in the military, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And so Uriah comes home from the battlefield. He is the, he's the, the husband of Bathsheba. And David's plan is that Uriah would go home, would lay with his wife. And when they have a child, everyone would think that it is Uriah's child. And so this is David's cover-up scheme. But what David is not counting on is the godliness of Uriah. 
the, 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 the honor of Uriah. And Uriah, instead of going home to be with his wife, slept on the steps of the palace because he says, I cannot imagine going home while other men are out in the battlefield, and while the ark of the Lord is out there, and while they are intense, I cannot enjoy these pleasures in a good conscience. Verse 15 says that, set Uriah, and, and so, so, all right, so that's plan B, and it fails because, the A, because he doesn't go away. Plan B, uh, what happens next is David says, okay, I'm going to get Uriah drunk, and then maybe Uriah will compromise his values, and he will go home, and he doesn't do that either. Again, David has an opportunity to confess his sin, but he doesn't do it. Instead, the cover-up continues, and he goes to plan C, and plan C we read about in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen. 15. It says, uh, David sent a letter with Uriah, and the letter said this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. In other words, abandon him that he may be struck down and died. And so here was plan C. David knew the honor of Uriah. He trusted Uriah. And so he sent with Uriah a letter to the commander that, that, that really commanded Uriah's own assassination. And it's successful. Uriah dies and other Israelite soldiers die as well. When news returns of Uriah's death, Bathsheba is grieved. And then we read in verse 27 and it says, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, one of my major uh, frustrations with children's Bibles is that they sanitize the people of the Bible. Uh, but just to, to put this in our own common day language, we know even right now uh, the, the governor of New York is, is under fire. People want him to, uh, to, to resign or, or to be, uh, what's the word, sorry, impeached uh, because he has been a little uh, he's been too touchy-feely with ladies, right? And so um, to what extent, I don't know. But, but they want him to be dismissed. What David does here is far worse than that. I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in these verses alone, in this chapter alone, he breaks almost all of the Ten Commandments. He worships the God of sensuality. He made Bathsheba into an idol. He dishonors his mother, mother and father's reputation. He murders. He commits adultery. He steals another man's wife. He creates this conspiracy of lies to cover it up. And it all started because he broke the 10th commandment in which he coveted his neighbor's wife. This story of David and Bathsheba is a line of bad decisions by David in which he had, a, he had opportunities time and time and time and time again to come clean, to confess his sin to God, and yet he chose time and time and time again to cover it up, leading to this down roll, sp downward spiral of sin and destruction and despair. This should be a warning to us, church, to repent quickly, to confess our sin quickly before the Lord and to those whom we have sinned against. And so David is living for months in this secrecy, but then God sends a brave prophet named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel comes to David and he tells a story. He says that there's this rich man with all of these, with all of these lambs, and, and then there's this one Poor man with just a single you, his precious you, baby lamb. And, and, and so someone comes through and they decide to slaughter one of the lambs to make a meal. And instead of the king taking one of his many sheep, he takes the lamb 
this ewe of this poor man and slaughters it and offers it as a meal. And David's response is, that man must die. And then Nathaniel says, that man is you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, David is confronted with this sin that he has been hiding for so long. And his immediate response is, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the backstory that leads to this psalm, to this Psalm 51. And so as you think of your deepest, darkest sin or an ongoing sin in your life, do not hide it any longer. Confess that sin to God and confess it to those that you need to within the church. As James 5 says, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's what David is doing here in this psalm. So let's look here. Verse 2. There's more to this. This first point is, is longer. But he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In verses 2 through 3, David uses three different words to describe his rebellion. He uses first the word iniquity, which has a sense of an offense against God's law that is worthy of punishment. The second word is sin. You've probably heard this as, as meaning miss the mark, as if we're shooting at a bullseye and we're slightly off of the middle of the bullseye. But really, the picture of this is if you're shooting an arrow and you don't even come close to the target and it falls short of the target. This is what sin is, to miss the mark of God's holy standards. The final word he uses here is transgressions, which we can also say as trespasses, as sometimes people do uh, in the Lord's Prayer. And what a trespass is, is a will willful disobedience. And so if you are out and about and you see a no trespassing sign and you say, I see that sign, I don't care, I'm going to trespass anyways, that is a picture of what this word is communicating. So here is the point, that for a long time, David did not confess his sin, but now through the power of the Holy Spirit, David sees the awfulness of his sin, and he is using every word he can grab to describe how heinous his rebellion has been against God. And if you notice here, and this is so important, David doesn't just confess his sin, he owns it. Look at verse 2 with me again. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David does not say, yeah, God, I did that, but you know what? Um, I'm lonely. You haven't given me a wife. He, he, didn't, he didn't confess that sin and say, yeah, but look, look at all that I have done for you. This is just a small mess up. There are no ifs, ands, or buts to David's confession. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is very instructive for us. I don't know you about you, but I know when I am confessing my sin to other people, I always want to add a but to it. You know, like, I'm sorry that I yelled at you, but you were really mean to me. Or I'm sorry I, I, I reacted this way, but blah, 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 blah. And when we are confessing sin in that way, we actually are not confessing sin. We're actually making accusations. And so here David confesses his sins with no ifs, ands, or buts. 
Verse four, he continues, says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not saying he hasn't sinned against Uriah. He hasn't sinned against Bathsheba. He hasn't sinned against Israel. He has done all of those things, but he knows ultimately that as he sins against all these people, every sin is against God because it is against the word of God and the commands of God. Verse five, he goes on to make the deepest of all of the confessions. And he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Again, he's not saying that the, the way that he was conceived was sinful between his mother and father. But what he is saying is that even in his conception, he was sinful from birth. And so his, his acting out towards Bathsheba and Uriah was not simply a blip in the screen. It wasn't just a moment of moral failure, but that he is a sinner through and through from birth. In other words, it's been said this way, David isn't a sinner because he sinned. He sinned because he is a sinner in his heart and in his soul from conception. And so he is confessing his utter depravity. Jesus says it this way. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is how Jesus describes your heart. And it says, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You've probably heard this story before, but but several decades ago, there was an editorial put in the London Times with this question. The question is, what is wrong with the world? And as uh, theologian G.K. Chesterton heard uh, many long-winded responses return, he decided to submit his own response. And in response to what is wrong with the world, he sent a postcard that simply said, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Some of you know that I am doing this thing called Journey Evangelism. One of the questions we ask people is, why is the world so messed up? Never once have I had a person says, say, because of me. It's always because of greed out there, racism out there, selfishness out there. It's never because of me. And yet here we see David saying, we must own our sin. We must say, I am the reason why I sin. It is not my parents' fault or my children's fault or my wife's fault. It is my fault. I have sinned. And so the first foundation for real repentance is real confession of our sin, owning it and confessing it to God. The second real repentance, uh, step for real repentance, are cries for mercy. Verse one again says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And then the very first thing he says in this Psalm, have mercy on me, O God. We'll return to the rest of this verse in a little bit, but, but he starts by saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, what is mercy? Mercy, simply defined, the way I like to define it, is mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so the question is, what did David deserve because of his sin? Well, we see here in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified or righteous in your words and blameless in your judgment. This term judgment has a judicial sense to it in which a, in which a judge will pass down his verdict upon a person. And what, what God had said to David earlier is that God's judgment against him would be threefold. 
First off, that David, um, that David, that, that the sword will never disappear from his house, that there will be constant fighting in his house, which if, if you read this story, you know that continues to happen. The second is that other men will take his wife, which continues to happen as well as he endures the consequences of what he has done to Uriah. And then the third is that the Lord says... that the child who will be born to Bathsheba will die. And I know that we may think, man, poor child, um, but the child might be the most blessed person in this whole story because later in the chapter we read that the child went up to be with the Lord. And so they, they got to forego the, the, the miseries of this world and go and be in the presence of the Lord immediately. But these are the consequences for David's sin. But even in the midst of this, even in, in the communication of, of these judgments upon David's sin and the consequences of his sin, God says something very important to Nathan who says it to David, which is this. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die as you deserve to do. Remember that term, put away your sin. That's going to come back to us later. David knew his sin. He knew the judgment that he deserved, the turmoil in whom, his own wives to be unfaithful to him, the death of his child. This is how severe sin is. But David deserves something even worse. Look at verse 11 with me. David pleads this. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that because of his sin, he deserved to be rejected by God himself. And it is David who professes in Psalm 16, God's presence is the fullness of joy. And so he says, Lord, please do not depart from me. I know that my sin deserves this, but please do not go away. Be present with me. And so again in verse 1, he says, have mercy on me, God. Do not give me what I deserve. And he doesn't say, according to my good works or because I slayed Goliath or because I am king of Israel. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Friends, the only hope we have to be recipients of the mercy of God is not our goodness. It is the goodness of God, the grace of God the storehouse of the mercy of God poured out upon us. And so David, pleading for mercy, asked the Lord to, quote, blot out my transgressions. In verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. I don't know if the kids here would be familiar with this product called Whiteout, um, but when I was in high school, I was very very too familiar with this product called Whiteout. Uh, this is Whiteout, and, and when you would write things uh, in class in pen, uh, because we didn't all have personal laptops at the time, uh, and we made a mistake, we would have to white it out, just like that, right? And so, so we live kind of, I think, in a post-Whiteout culture, for the most part, because of computers. David lived in a pre-Whiteout culture, but this is essentially what David is asking. He's asking the Lord to blot out, to, to white out his sins so that they do not appear on his record for his judgment from God above. 
And so he's pleading for God through his mercy to white out his sins so that David would not receive justice, but so that David would receive mercy. Friends, we too are desperately need of the mercy of God. We do not want what is fair. We want mercy. So in real repentance, we confess our sin and own our sin without any excuses, no ifs, ands, or buts. But then also in real repentance, we cry out for the mercy of God upon us to blot out our record of wrongs according to his steadfast love and mercy. The final part of real repentance that we're looking at today is that real repentance calls for cleansing. Look at verse two with me. He says, wash me thoroughly. This word thoroughly means increasingly. David is calling out for a continual or repeated cleansing by the Lord. And so if you were to translate it very literally, it'd be wash me much, wash me much from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, if you confess your sin before God, that is a great foundation to start upon. It is wonderful. If you cry out for mercy and he forgives your sins, that is amazing and that is so good. But we know that even if we confess our sin and God forgives us, that there is still an indwelling of sin. There is still a, a taintedness of sin and a dirtiness of sin. And so we need the Lord to clean up the pollution in our heart. And this is what David is crying out for, for God to do it not just once, but continually and time and time again. You know, it's funny, just yesterday I was driving my, my truck around and the windshield was just nasty. It had dirt and bugs and pollen all over it. And I thought, man, I should really get a car wash, but I didn't have time to get a car wash. But you know what happened? God washed my car last night. And, and I'm driving here today, I'm not kidding you, but everything was gone. Like it was crystal clear. Yesterday I made this mistake, if you've ever done this, it was all dirty, you know, with bugs and dirt and all that sort of stuff. And so I, I tried the windshield wiper fluid and wiped it and oh my gosh, it was just so much worse, right? Have you ever experienced that? Probably, but, but then God came and he washed my window thoroughly, not with just one boom, but, but wash and wash and wash and wash. And this is what David is crying out for. Lord, wash the windshield of my heart. I have tried to do it on my own and it just gets worse. You wash it, Lord. And here's the thing, my windshield, it's gonna get dirty again. In our hearts, we will not defeat sin this side of the grave. We will need the Lord to wash our hearts again and again and again and again. And this is what David cries out for. He continues in verse seven and says, purge me or purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now you may or may not be familiar with hyssop. I think we have a picture of it here. There's, there's a picture of hyssop and David uses the hyssop plant because hyssop has a significant uh, part to play in the redemption of God's people. Uh, we first learn about hyssop in Exodus 12, in which hyssop was dipped into the blood of the Passover lamb and it was spread over the doorpost of the house in faith, knowing that this blood that was dipped in hyssop and posted over the house would save these people from their sin and that, that the angel of death would not come in and kill them. And so it was used to, to smear the blood for salvation. 
As we go on in Leviticus and Numbers, the hyssop plant is used when someone is ceremonially unclean. They dip the hyssop into blood of a bird and then they sprinkle it on the person to make them ceremonially and externally clean. And so David says, create in me, in verse 10, create me in clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so, so David, David knows the, 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 the history of the hyssop plant and the people of God. He knew that the hyssop plant was God's means of absorbing blood and applying blood to not only save the people from their sins, but also to cleanse the people from their sins. You see, the hyssop, it's all about saving and cleansing blood. And this is what David is crying out for, for God's saving and cleansing blood to wash over him. And so we get then to Hebrews 9.19, and it says this. It says, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 22, he goes on and says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 24, he continues, says, for Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands. That's the temple in Jerusalem which are copies, just copies of the true things in heaven, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, like the animals were, as a high priest enters a holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age, and then hear this closely, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you remember the promise to David? The promise to David is even though there are these consequences to your sin, God will put away your sin and you will not die. But how was God going to do that? And we read it here at the very end. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, the animal blood-soaked hyssop was not good enough. It was good enough for an external and cleaning and a temporary salvation, but it was also pointing forward to a better blood, a blood that could not just cleanse us externally, ceremonially, but internally in our souls, a blood that would not just save us temporally from the Egyptians, but save us eternally from the wrath of God. The better blood that saves us and cleanses us is not the blood of birds or bulls or goats. It is the blood of the descendant of David, a better David, a sinless David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would, by the great mercy of God, take on our sin, to blot out our sin, to cleanse us from our sin, and to put away our sin once and for all. No longer do we need a hyssop branch soaked in the blood of animals because we have the cross, the, the hyssop plant of God that is soaked in the blood of our Savior. And it is by that awful, beautiful, majestic crimson blood that we are washed from the inside out and forever and for always to be made whiter than snow. 
Let me end with this. Amen, absolutely. Praise God. In Luke 18, uh, Jesus is talking to a religious crowd, much like us here today. And he tells the story of, of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious person, who stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. The other man was a sinful, sinful, sinful tax collector. And the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this statement that just blows them away. He says, I tell you, the sinful tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Today, as you have listened to this sermon about real repentance, maybe you have been thinking about someone who needs to hear this sermon. Maybe you have been thinking about your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your, your dad, your mom. What? Maybe you have thought about someone else who needs to hear this sermon, Pharisee. The person that needs to hear this sermon is sitting in your chair. We must come to God for mercy because God is abundant in mercy. And so whether you come here today as a sinful, religious Pharisee or a sinful, irreligious tax collector, we must come with real repentance. And so I want to do something just a little bit different than normal usually um, we, we transition right into communion. But today, I want you actually to take the, the main points of the sermon and actually do it. Just in your chair. Take a moment for real repentance. To confess your sin before God with any, without any ifs, ands, or buts. To plead for his mercy that he would not treat you as your sin deserves. And then call for God to cleanse you from that indwelling sin that so easily entangles us. So let's just take a moment to do that and I will close us in prayer after a few minutes.